In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad Before continuing where we left off, let's summarize quickly the argument that we've been building over the past few weeks. So we started by saying that religion is an instinctive need in all human beings. And we explained what that means. So when we say something is universal or instinctive in human beings, we gave a number of criteria that have to be met. And then we went on to explain or to question whether faith and reason are compatible or not. Is it possible for someone to say, I have faith, and still believe and give importance to reason and rationality and logic or not? And one of the ways that we did this is we explained it from a logical perspective, and we said people are not willing to let go of their logic, of their reason, of their rationality. That's one point. One point. And then we contrasted the Islamic perspective with other religions. And we said there might be other religions that say that religious knowledge can be based entirely on faith. And in fact, there is no place for too much questioning and logic and reason because it's contrary to faith. And we didn't spend too much time on that, but we could spend entire lectures just on this point to explain to what extent, for instance, in Christianity, reason and logic are not considered a good thing. Right from the beginning of their sacred book, the, the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, in Genesis, when you start reading, you see that in their version of the story of Adam salam, they say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him not to eat from a tree that they refer to as the tree of knowledge. The forbidden tree is the tree of knowledge in their version. And the reason is that, as it is explained to them by Satan in heaven, in that world, they are going to know right from wrong and good from evil. So it is a tree that once you eat from it, you gain knowledge. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, according to that version, to that religion, does not want human beings to gain that kind of knowledge because according to that version, they will be equal or like God, like us, as Genesis says. Of course, in the Islamic version of that story, that's absolutely unacceptable. We say that the tree had nothing to do with being a tree of knowledge. It's not knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want to give to Adam salam or human beings in general. In fact, in the Islamic version of the story of Adam, one of the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked the angels to prostrate before Adam was that he had given him a knowledge that they did not have. As the Quran says, Adam al-asma'a kullaha. 
So one of the reasons is because not, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him a knowledge that they did not have. That made him special. That gave him a merit that they did not have. So right from the beginning of our interpretation of reality, our understanding of the relationship of human beings with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and with the world, we see that there is a very big contrast between the way perhaps other religions view the importance of knowledge and logic and reason with how Islam views it. Like it's ingrained right from the root, right from the beginning. You see there's a, a divergence. One religion is going in one way and saying the reason why human beings fell, the fall as they call it, the fall was the result of human beings going towards knowledge and they shouldn't have. And we're saying the merit of a human being right from the beginning is the ability to gain knowledge that other creatures are not able to gain. That's step one. So right from the beginning we see a divergence. After explaining these differences, we also went to try to look at a number of famous personalities that are considered having very rigorous logic, very rigorous scientific minds, very strong reason. No one would dispute that those people have a very strong rational or reason or logical dimension. No one would dispute that. And yet we see that in many cases, even the most prestigious, the most famous, the most popular of those scientists, many of them were still believers in God. So that's one other way that we said, we show that there is no incompatibility, no contradiction between reason and faith. And then we went on to look through the Qur'an very quickly, to look at different types of verses that in one way or another are always reminding us, showing us the importance of reason in our religion. We said there are verses that simply say it is important to know, to acquire knowledge. That's one type of verse. Another type of verse explains in general the importance of reflection and thinking and using our minds. And then we have another type of verse that insists on studying nature and studying nature in a way that brings us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which means it's a deeper study of nature. It's not studying nature at the surface. It's studying nature and trying to see why is it the way it is. Understanding the connections, understanding that it has design, understanding that it's much deeper than what we see at the surface. And then we saw other verses of the Qur'an telling us that we have to study human history so that we learn from previous nations. And then we saw other verses of the Qur'an saying that in our religion, it is unacceptable to follow what we found our parents following. That's not a valid argument. They may be right, they may be wrong, but just doing it because your parents do it is not enough. That's unacceptable. And beyond that, the Qur'an also says you cannot have a belief system, you cannot have faith if it's only based on what the Qur'an calls conjecture, which is a van, which is something that doesn't reach the level of certainty. 
The Qur'an says if you want to have faith in something, you have to have 100% certainty that it is true. At the end of all of this, when we put all of these arguments together, the conclusion to the question that we asked, which was, is faith and reason, are they compatible or not? We said the answer is not only is reason compatible with faith, in Islam, the Islamic position is that reason is part of religion. It is impossible to have an Islamic faith that does not have reason in it. It's unacceptable. Islam does not want believers, Islamic believers, people who consider themselves good Muslims, who do not have a very strong, who do not give a very strong importance to reason, to logic, to introspection, meditation, deep reflection. All of that is part of the foundations of our religion. <clears throat> so, this was to start seeing the place of reason and faith. Okay, this was a first step. The second step that we wanted to see is what do we do between the importance of faith on one side and the importance of reason on the other? In other words, are they trying to do the same thing? Or in other words, the way we ask the question, are they competing? Is faith and reason, is your heart and your mind, are they competing for the same thing or are they supposed to have different functions? And we said they are supposed to have different functions. The role of reason is supposed to be to help you discern, to help you distinguish between things that are contradictory and things that are not contradictory. The role of faith, the role of religion, is supposed to help you improve on your spirituality. It's supposed to teach you right from wrong. Not in the logical sense, in the moral sense. That's the purpose of the spiritual guidance that you get from, that you get from faith. Reason is supposed to help you distinguish to identify contradictions, to identify weakness in argument, to tell whether an argument is valid or not valid, and to distinguish between things that are contradictory and things that are not contradictory, that are valid logically. That's the place of reason and the place of faith. That's the role they play, their importance. And we also said to be careful because sometimes, especially in these times, the word reason is often being used when what they should be using is natural science. These are two different things. Reason is not equal to natural science, and natural science is not equal to reason. Reason is a logical ability to think properly. That goes way beyond a specific discipline. Natural science, or science in short, I'm intentionally saying natural science because nowadays, again, the word science is used very vaguely and very generally as though it is everything, as though any type of logical reasoning must be only in the natural sciences world. And anything outside of that 
is not rational, is not reasonable, is not logical. Natural science is one discipline. It has tools and it has approaches and it has ways to study nature. That's all it can do. And people come up with better ways always to, study, to try to study nature, to predict nature, to understand how nature works, not why. They can never reach why. Why does it snow? Not really. How does it snow? We can tell. We can see because of the temperature and because of the pressure and, 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 and. This is the how. But why is it this way? This is where science stops. The why can never be reached from a purely natural science explanation. So this is something to keep in mind when you hear the word reason, when you hear rationality, when you hear science, make sure the words are being used properly. Do we mean natural science? Natural science's place is to study nature. And the way you study nature is by using your five senses and then using your mind to draw conclusions from what your senses are telling you. That's the extent of what you can do with natural science. Reason is way beyond that. Yes, reason is used in the natural science sciences, but it's also used elsewhere. In fact, we use reason in every aspect of our lives, or we're supposed to, or we claim to. Okay? And then we said, now let's come to our beliefs. So what do we do with reason and what do we do with faith? Or, now to use a different kind of terminology, what's the role of reason in our faith? And what's the role of religious knowledge in our faith? What we're really talking about now is the source of the information. So where is the information coming from? Is this a type of information that we can reach through intellectual study? Or is it a type of information that needs to be taken directly from a religious source? And the way we explained that, we said human beings, if we go back to previous lessons, and this is how we're putting it all together now, we said human beings have an instinctive desire, an instinctive need for religion. So what does that mean concretely? That means that everybody shares a set of questions that we all feel we want to answer. Any human being everywhere on earth at any time. Everybody wants to know where we come from. Everybody wants to know what we're doing here. And everybody wants to know where we're going. These are the most fundamental questions human beings have. And of course, the more you mature intellectually in life, the more these questions become important for you. And the more it becomes important to find meaning in life through those questions. When you don't have that much maturity intellectually, you don't give a lot of importance to these questions. You feel them, you might think about them from time to time. But as you mature in life, as you go through things in life, and you become more mature, you evolve intellectually and psychologically, those questions become more and more important. Everybody tries to answer them. The role of reason is first to ask those questions. That's one. So at least it's directing you towards these topics. 
Secondly, the role of reason is to start answering those questions. So the beginning of your faith, the beginning of your belief system comes from reason. Reason on its own, without any religious sources, reason on its own should lead you to belief in the existence of a God. Reason on its own should tell you that there must be something after you die for this world to make sense. And inshallah over the next lectures, we will prove all of this purely with reason. We will show how rationally you can build this kind of system. We will prove, we will give the arguments and the proofs and the demonstration that is required to establish all of this on a logical basis, on a rational basis. And we will complement it with the Qur'an, we will complement it with the narrations. But we'll show that you can build this entire foundation on a logical basis. But then the question is, so where does the faith part come from? If I can do all of this with reason, then where do I, why do I need a religion, specifically this one or that one? What's the role of faith or religious knowledge versus rationality, logic, reason? And here is where we start to distinguish and we say there are two types of beliefs of religious knowledge. The ones that are considered foundational, they're at the root of everything, those are based on reason. These are the primary elements of your belief system. To those, you now have to come and add a lot of detail. The detail cannot come from your reason. Reason does not have any tools to go get the details. Reason can tell you there must be something after death. Death cannot be the end. Based on everything we know in this world, it does not make sense to say and then nothing happens after you die. That part we're going to show. We can prove based on reason. But what happens after death? What does it look like? What shape does it take? Reason doesn't have any tools to tell you what that looks like. Reason can tell you there must be a God and give you some of the main attributes of God. But it cannot give you all of them. The details of your belief cannot come from your reason. Reason can give you the big pieces and direct you in a certain way and once you go in that way, you're going to start finding the details. But they don't come from reason. Another thing that you can get from reason. Reason tells you if there is a God and He has created the world in a certain way and expects things from you as a human being, then you have to have a relationship with that God. That relationship can be in all sorts of ways. Usually human beings refer to that direct relationship with God in a ritual that we refer to as prayer. But prayer can be anything. You look at every faith and every religion and every new age movement, everybody has a sort of prayer and meditation and trying to connect with the absolute and the infinite and the sacred. Right? 
But why does it have to look this way or that way? Where do we get that from? Can your reason tell you what prayer should look like? No. This is the details. The details, you cannot reach them purely by reason. Reason gives you a general direction, general elements. They're very important. They're going to become your foundation. And on that foundation, you're going to start building the details, especially the actions that come out of those beliefs. And those actions, reason alone, is not enough to reach them. Reason alone tells you there must be things that you have to do to improve yourself spiritually. Reason may be even able to tell you that depriving yourself of food and desires and things that you're always accustomed to is a good thing for your discipline, for your health, for, 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 and especially for your spiritual improvement. But is it really going to have the shape that we'll see when we do the fasting of the holy month of Ramadan? No. There's a lot of details in there that are added that your reason alone cannot reach on its own. So this is another distinction that we start seeing between the role of your reason and logic and how far it can go and where it stops and where the rest has to come from. So now, we want to keep building on that. Now we're going to add, let's start with a good example. The example is going to be, I think all of us here, we think that we live our lives in a, based on reason. We do things based on our logic and our rationality. Right? That's how we live our lives, normally, every human being. So, let's say one of us feels ill, feels sick, you go to the doctor. You went to the doctor because you're feeling sick, the doctor prescribed a medication for you. You went to the pharmacy, you bought the medication, and you took it as prescribed by the doctor and the pharmacist. So far so good? Okay. If someone hears, sees you doing all of this, do they consider you someone who has acted based on reason and logic and rationality? Or do they say you are acting based on blind faith? You consider that blind faith? Who says blind faith and who says rationality? You say rationality? Because rationality? Why is it blind faith? Because you didn't, you didn't, you didn't uh, do the research yourself and decide that this medication is good for me. You're trusting somebody else's knowledge. So I think it's blind faith. Okay. Why is it uh, based on rationality? Okay. So technically, it's like um, it's a mix of both because uh, first the reason 
using your reasoning, you go to the doctor, and then blindfully or whatever, you believe when the pres prescribed medication because you know he's a professional. Okay. Yeah, he's saying because uh, you need the medication right now, so the only way to know the medication is either become an expert, which takes a while, and you do it right now, or go to somebody that has credentials of being the expert and taking a shortcut, basically. That's it? Okay, so that's actually the right answer. So is it one or the other? Well, it depends. It's actually made up of two things. So now you guys are saying the two things, but you have to be careful how you say them. You're hitting all the points. It's just how you package them. The rationality part, and there is a rationality part, and there's a blind faith part. But generally speaking, when you put all of this together, you do not say that this is blind faith. A normal person who looks at this situation would say you're acting based on reason. But what allows you to say that? This is based on rationality. What allows you to act based on rationality? Is that exactly like you said? If you're saying based on rationality that because you are an expert, you can do it. This is based on your own reason. And if it's not your own reason, then you can rely on the reason of someone else that you trust, that you're sure has the right reason, has the right rationality, to the extent that you can rely on them. So it's a reliable, valid expertise, specialization. If that, that condition is met, you know the claims, the statements, the advice that you're getting from that kind of person is valid then a rational, reasonable person will say, you can rely on them with blind faith. Because they're a trustworthy source for that kind of information. Right? And that's the blind faith part. It is a blind faith, but it's a blind faith once you've established that it's a valid blind faith. So, do re rational, reasonable human beings rely on the blind faith aspect in their normal lives or not? Yes. In fact, we do in everything. Not that many of us are electricians. We rely on the electrician and we think, we assume that they've done their part. So when you walk into a house and you turn on the light, your assumption is that the whole, the whole house is not going to burn because you assume that they've done their part. You rely on it. You rely on the fact that your mechanic did a good job when they fixed your car, and it's not going to blow up when you're going to drive away from the garage. Right? That the dentist is not going to mess up your teeth more. He's going to fix them when he's done working on you. And so on and so forth. Human beings in general consider it a valid argument to rely on the expertise of someone else and to put your blind faith in them on condition one condition is that you've already established beforehand that you can rely on that expertise, that you can rely on them for that faith. Something has to tell you that you can put your faith in them. So in the case of a doctor, for instance, this is something that society has decided together over time. They've decided that if you take these 30 courses and you pass, and you do maybe one year to one year and a half of practice, 
then you know enough about the human body to start giving advice and prescribing medication and treating people who need the treatment. Tomorrow those things could change. They could say instead of 30 courses you need 60 or 20. And instead of one year of practice you need 10 years or 2 months. It's something that people decide together. But you've put your trust in that system and you say if someone has that degree that has been established socially and it seems to be working, I have reason to believe that it's working well enough, I can put my trust in it, I can rely on it. Now let's go back to our original question. So what we've said so far is that the foundations of your belief system, you have to reach them on your own. On your own, you have to be convinced, you do your own thinking and you do your own research that is there a God or is there no God? What kind of God is it? You have to reach that on your own. You cannot follow the, the blind faith argument for something like this. Because everything is going to rely on this after. So those pieces you have to establish on your own. You can't go to the specialist for those. If you go to the specialist, it's to get more information for yourself. You kind of have to become your own specialist for those things. To the point where it's enough for you. And for one person, what's enough is going to be different than what's enough for another person. This is very personal. But you have to be convinced of those foundational elements, the root of your entire belief system. Once you've established all of that, you have those big pieces, and then there's someone, a man, in our case by the name of Muhammad who comes and who makes certain claims. He makes some statements. If I have established that I can trust this person, if I have already established that I can rely on this person when they make these claims, if I start taking those claims and applying them in my life as blind faith, is that considered based on reason? Is that the action, the behavior of a reasonable person? Or is now that some is now someone who sees me, are they going to say, this is not based on reason. This is not based on logic and rationality. This is based on pure faith and you have absolutely no idea if this is right and wrong. Someone who has already done the work to establish that what this person is saying is true and I have every reason to put my faith in them, just like I did with the architect and the electrician and the doctor, I've already also done with the, this person that is claiming to be sent from God. If I've done that work and I've established that they are sent from God, then do I need a specific proof for every claim that they're making or can I, tr can I start trusting the claims they're making and build my life on them? For those pieces, we're not saying that you shouldn't ask for why. But if you ask why, what you're going to get is a bonus for you. Unless you haven't established first that you can rely on that person. 
if I can rely on this person called Muhammad that they are a trustworthy source, that they are, that they are really sent from God, then after this, if they come and they say, and therefore you should wake up before the sun rises and perform two rak'at of prayer, I should be able to say, yeah, and this is reasonable behavior. This is based on if. This is the big if. If I was able to establish first that this is truly someone sent from God. After that, the behaviors that come out of that belief, they're secondary. They're details. So if someone comes to me now and says, why do you fast? Why do you pray? Why do you wear hijab? Why do you do any of the rituals you do in a religion? This is secondary. I do it because God wants me to. Of course I can say, and it's good for my health. I don't eat pork because pork is bad for your health. I pray because, I, I fast because. I, these are secondary reasons. This is us rationalizing this behavior, that behavior. The real reason is I do it because this person called Muhammad told me to do it and based on everything I've researched and thought about and I know and I've studied, this person is sent from God. In other words, God is ordering me to fast, therefore I fast. Now I can give you some benefits that I get out of fasting, but I'm not fasting for those benefits. Yeah, it makes me more healthy. I may lose weight. Okay, what if fasting resulted in me not being that healthy or not losing that much weight? Does it mean I stop fasting? No. Which means that's not the reason I'm fasting. Some people say when you perform your prayer, the way our head and our body is structured, let's say when we perform the sujood, you attach yourself in a certain way to the magnetism of earth. And that re-energizes and grounds your body. And that's very important. And there are a lot of, all sorts of meditation, yogis and others do, that do similar things. And so they say, look how our prayer remagnetizes and grounds our body. And it gives us the energy of earth. That's really good. But is that really why I'm performing the sujood? So if tomorrow someone came and said, it doesn't work that way, this is not valid, I'm going to stop performing the sujood? No. So this is an additional benefit that I may look up, that I may think about, that I may add. But at the end of the day, that was not the reason why I performed the sujood or I performed the prayer. This is an additional benefit. This was not the reason. So whenever you are asked or you are thinking about behaviors and rituals and acts that you're performing, don't look at the act itself. Look at the belief system that is leading to the act. Don't ask me why I fast. Ask me why I believe what I believe in and what I believe in leads me to fasting. My answer is always going to be partial if I only talk about that one act. That one act is based is part of a much bigger system. That whole system is put together and it's based on a belief system. You want to know why someone does something? Go to their belief system. 
Don't say, why do you do this? Why do you wear the scarf? Of course, I can give you the secondary reasons. But the primary reason is God wants me to. Now I can rationalize it for you. Now I can give you the theory. Now I can give you some explanations. But the real explanation is, I believe in God and I believe He asked me to do that. And that's it. That's enough of a valid explanation. If I've already established that there is a God, that He has communicated His message in a certain way, that it has reached me, then I can add all that. Make sense? Okay. Now, let's go a little bit quicker until we finish. The Holy Prophet passes away. The Imams come until a time when there are no more Imams. So what do we do now? Again, to use logic on one side, we do what we just said we would do in the case of someone being sick. You go looking for what? You look for an expert. You look for a specialist. In the case of religion, the same thing. You're going to go look for a specialist in religion and he's going to tell you the same thing. So you're going to go take the, your religious matters from that person. So there's an intellectual argument that leads you to that expert. Just like you have the same intellectual argument in the rest of your life. If you need to build a house, you go to an engineer. If you need to fix your car, you go to a mechanic. You need to go to that expert because that's the type of need you have. And then when we go back to the Imams and we go back to the Holy Prophet and we see what they told us, they told us, if you do not have access to the Imam and to the Holy Prophet, then you must rely on the scholars. So we have a religious reason and we have a rational reason, both of us telling us that if you do not have access to this source of knowledge, religious knowledge, then you have to go to the expert. So what's the role of that expert? Is it to come up with stuff on their own, to make up stuff? No. Their role, and therefore their expertise, is to look into the Holy Qur'an and look into all of the narrations of the Holy Prophet and Ahlul Bayt and extract in the proper way all religious issues. So when we say scholar, what we're saying is someone who knows the Holy Qur'an and the Ruwayat inside out and who has their interpretation of all of them so that whatever you need in terms of religious issues, they are able to take out from them. They're not making stuff up. They're not pulling it out of thin air. The only thing that they have to work with is the Holy Qur'an and the Ruwayat. Everything you ask them, they have to be able to take it out of that. That's all they have at their disposal. When someone reaches that level of knowledge of our religion, that they know all the ruwayat, all the narrations, and they know all the verses of the Qur'an, to the point where they are able to extract the religious answers from them independently without relying on someone else, we say that they have reached the level, the rank 
the degree of ijtihad. So when someone is a mujtahid, it's someone who has reached that level. So far it makes sense? Okay, now a couple more things about ijtihad. So just to make sure, where are they getting the answers? Can they make up the answer? Can they sit home and think and say, okay, maybe we should do it this way instead of that way? No. The answer has to be found in the narrations of the Holy Prophet and the Imams and in the Holy Verses of the Qur'an. That's one thing. Secondly, who can become a scholar? So let's ask the question in two different ways. If tomorrow all Muslims decided that they wanted themselves to become a scholar, is that okay? Or is that not okay? Is this a path that is open to anyone and everyone and everyone can become their own scholar and therefore they don't re need to rely on anyone else? Yes, but no. Like, yes, but they still need someone. They need to rely on somebody to get someone. Okay. But yes, they could be their own expert. Okay. Yes, they so that's that's the right answer exactly that path that option of everybody becoming a scholar for themselves instead of relying on someone else is open to everyone of course there's a social dimension because it's a lot of work to reach that level of expertise in religion to the point where if everybody dedicated their entire life to reaching that point I think there's a lot of aspects of society that would no longer work properly okay and that's a whole and that's a whole topic that needs to be discussed in, in fiqh that what are the functions in society that are absolutely essential and you would see some of the fuqaha, some of the jurists of these experts saying we need more people in that field or that field. Okay? So if tomorrow everybody decided to become a scholar, they could. So what I'm saying is if tomorrow any of you decided that you want to stop following someone else, well, you better get to work and start heading in that direction so that you reach that level of expertise. And at that point you no longer need to rely on someone else's opinion in the manner in which you can extract your religious knowledge from the Holy Qur'an and the narrations. Until that point, you're at their mercy. That's what any rational, reasonable person would tell you. Just like you're at the mercy of the doctor for your illness and the mechanic for your car troubles. You can't make it up on your own. Any rational person would tell you, you better not touch that because you're going to cause more harm than good. Now let's flip the question. If tomorrow everybody decided that no one wants to become a scholar in that sense, of that level of expertise, is that acceptable or not? Acceptable in society or religion? Religion. Religion. 
No. Why no? It probably would have been like little acceptable back when Rasulullah Sallallahu there because you had someone to fall back on and Khalid, you know. But today if that happened, where would all our knowledge and our findings and our research on Islam come from? So we just stay at where we are right now and we never advance. Exactly. While the first one is, the path is open to everyone, anyone can become a scholar. So tomorrow if everybody decided in theory to become a scholar, we would say, okay, go become a scholar. But if everybody said, I don't want to become a scholar, we would say no. In fact, if this were to happen, this would be haram on everybody in society. Why? And this is why where our religion says there are two types of obligations. There are obligations that are individual. That means regardless of what everybody else is doing, this is your individual obligation. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing, you have to pray. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing, you have to fast. These are individual obligations. And there are collective obligations, obligations that are more social, they go beyond you. And in those cases, if someone does it, then it's no longer an obligation on the others. Yeah. So is it like the thing where, like, let's say someone walks into the majlis and says, Salaam Alaikum, and as long as you want something, then someone says, Wa Alaikum Salaam, it's not. Exactly. This is a type of obligation that we call kifai, wajib kifai. It's a collective obligation that is on upon all of us until someone steps up and does it. And then it's no longer an obligation on anyone else. And so that per person, not only do they get the thawab for themselves for having done it, because they stepped up, but they get the thawab of having relieved everybody else of having to do it. So the salam is probably the, the easiest example in our daily lives. But another one, for instance, is if someone passes away. Someone has to perform the prayer. The, the Salat al-Mayyit, the prayer of the deceased for that person. Someone has to perform those rituals. If no one does it, if this Muslim person passes away and no one does it, it's haram on everybody. If one person does it, all Muslims. Someone has to do it. Or on anybody who knows that that guy died. Of course, yes. That's what we mean. Anybody who is in that context that is capable of doing it and whose that duty would fall on them. Until someone does it, it's an obligation on everybody. So you can't rely on someone else. Someone has to step up. And if they do, then they've relieved everybody else of that duty. Reaching this level of knowledge in religion is exactly of this type. And there are verses of the Qur'an and narrations that clearly state it in that way too. That it's not an obligation for everybody to reach this level of expertise in religion. But in every area of the world, 
in every group of people, there has to be a number of them who dedicate themselves to studying religion so that they can inform the others of it. This is the duty. And this is why we start, how we start understanding the importance that our religion gives to those people. They're basically dedicating their entire lives to this so that others can have their normal lives. And you go to them only when you need them. And in religious matters, what else is there that is of greater importance than this? And this is one way to understand the role of scholars in our religion. So this gives us kind of a general idea on how we went from this notion of the place of reason in our faith and the relationship between reason and faith and what each of them is supposed to do and the importance of reason in our belief system and how our belief system is first built based on reason and the details come from religion and those details when we say they come from religion although it may look like we are putting a blind faith in this religion. The blind faith comes only after we've established the rational validity of that system. This gets us all the way now to this idea that we call taqlid, or following a scholar, a scholar's opinion in religious matters that are considered what? Secondary. The details of religion the applications of religion. I don't go to my scholar to see whether God exists. Right? That one I have to find on my own. But I go to him to see how am I supposed to do my sujood exactly. And if I travel and I'm fasting, do I stay fasting or do I break my fast? And at what distance do I break my fast? See, these are the details of our religion. They're not the big components of does God exist and what happens after death and is the Qur'an the word of God or not. This is a very different kind of question. Once those questions have been researched and you've reached your answer, the big ones are rational. The details of the big questions come from religion. What happens after death? Detail. Something happens. It doesn't all end. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair for this world to make sense. There has to be an afterlife. But what does it look like? Reason stops there. And this is where religion has to come and add the details. So it may say there is something that may or may not happen in the grave. And something that may or may not happen in an afterlife. And it takes this shape or that shape. This is where religion comes and adds, complements all with all the details. I'm going to stop here. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين. اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين.